if we can create that sustainable area pregnant with opportunities for our young people that people on let's say ordinary incomes can afford to live in and participate in just as much as the really wealthy people if we can make this truly green if we can make this a vibrant cultural back garden for everyone in an x mile radius if we can support these local institutions the potential for this landed estate to flourish and grow in the future is unlimited Welcome back to Wab Chat, a podcast from White and Black Limited. My name is Sam Ridgway. Thank you so much for taking the time out to listen today. Episode nine already of Wab Chats, they're flying past, but the brilliant guests just keep on coming. And today I'm speaking with Dom Hare, who is CEO of Blenheim Palace. And Dom and his team over at Blenheim have been long-term friends of the firm. Dom himself studied law at Oxford and after qualifying as a chartered accountant with KPMG, he spent the next 10 years in corporate finance, investment banking, and prior to becoming um, CEO, Dominic worked as finance director of Blenheim for 13 years. And Blenheim is, of course, best known for the palace, which has stood since the 1700s, of course, the birthplace of Sir Winston Churchill and an incredibly popular tourist attraction but you don't need to do much digging to find that there is so much more to Blenheim beyond the palace. It's made up of different businesses, uh, Blenheim Palace which is perhaps most recognisable but you've also got Blenheim Estates which has a portfolio of residential, commercial and agricultural properties and dedicated forestry, farming and parkland management practices and Pie Homes which is Blenheim's home building arm and since becoming CEO Dom has thrown all of his energy into pursuing Blenheim's long-term vision, which he is set to be sharing and protecting this place, or Blenheim, for future generations, enhancing the lives of local people and being the lifeblood to the local economy. And that's something we talk about a lot in this podcast and come back to. And this vision is being pursued by Blenheim using... 10 measurable goals over the next 10 years and beyond and Dom and I get into a couple of these goals in this episode but just to give you a flavour of the impact that Blenheim has before we start. 2,673 jobs were supported by Blenheim in 2021-22 alone and that is either directly through employment at the palace or other parts of the company that I mentioned earlier or indirectly through employment by local businesses that rely on Blenheim being that incredibly strong tourist attraction, bringing people to the local area. Um, and Blenheim also had a total of 136.8 million in uh, GVA economic impact in that same period. So really already becoming a vital economic pillar for the local community and surrounding area. And of course, as you'll hear, Blenheim's impact is so much more than purely economic, but that gives you an idea of um, the reach that Blenheim has already. And as you'll hear on this episode, Dom and his team at Blenheim are far from your traditional landed estate. They're doing something incredibly innovative, actually, um, inspiring things, paving new ways, really, for landed estates and properties like theirs. And as I said at the start, white and black are fortunate enough to have worked with Dom and the team for a long time now and uh, and been with them throughout their development and their growth really so it's it's a great conversation to have so with no more from me um i started out by asking dom how he came to be ceo of such an amazing company i had uh, an unconventional journey 
to Blenheim and what and what I do now, unconventionally in, in two ways. Firstly, if you look around landed estates, I don't look like any other <laughs> leader of a landed estate. Uh, and nor, nor in fact, I would say do the do the senior team or the team at Blenheim. Um, I mean, for one thing, uh, we're fifty-fifty male, female. Um, yeah, landed estates historically are led by males over fifty, white clearly, um, crooked shotgun over arm, tweed wearing, <laughs> dogs yapping around your feet, and I'm, I'm the only one I'll sign up to on that is over fifty and male, uh, and probably not the rest. Uh, but my background also, I, yeah, I, I, I started off studying for a law degree, knew pretty quickly that that I loved studying law and I would never want to be a lawyer, which is probably not an F message I should be sending out via um, white and black chat. But anyway, uh, oh, I, I, but I, but I, love, I love studying it. And, and I've always said to people, I, I, I got, I've, I've had infinite benefit in every job I've done from having done a law degree. Mm-hmm. That I wasn't a lawyer. Uh, I then I then left university and went and joined KPMG, the accountancy firm in Liverpool. Moved on into uh, corporate finance with KPMG, a, a new partner, and I set up a corporate finance team out of Liverpool. But we were determined not to do things like just local management buyouts, local sales of businesses, that kind of thing. So we, James, who was brilliant got very much into football clubs and so he advised on Franny Lee buying Manchester City and Peter Johnson buying Everton and things like that which is great but I learned so much in corporate finance went to London investment banking stumbled in by pure luck to a small investment bank called Paribas which had a couple of niches it was really really good at disproportionately good at a bit like white and black in some of its areas you know can, mm-hmm. you can slug it out with the biggest law firms in the city right harry mm-hmm. bow is a bit like that in public sector finance but also in media and telecoms which is a big thing then and so my first deal by utter luck was helping chris evans by virgin radio which okay i kind of I remember my boss taking me aside at the end and saying, Dom, congratulations, I'm very pleased with you, but you you have to understand not every deal you'll do will be the lead headline on the front of the Sun and the Times. And it won't it won't make the, te- the what was then the nine o'clock news headlines. It won't make those either. And I thought, no, of course they will. And I discovered afterwards, no, you never hit that again. But I also I also had a lot of fun. I, I specialised in children's visual content. So I, I helped Bob the Builder by... Barney the Purple Dinosaur and Thomas the Tank Engine. Briefly a hero to my then sort of seven, six, seven year old kids. Uh, but I came out of investment banking in the dot com boom in 2002. And I was living in Oxford at the time. And I really enjoyed getting to know the area, getting to know my kids properly. Because as a banker, you, you kind of kissed them goodnight on Saturday night and Sunday night, sorry, and and you didn't really see them again until Saturday morning because mm. I was gone by 5 a.m. and I wouldn't be back till 10 p.m. And and, I, and also, it, it, I, I settled that one of the reasons I came out of the city was real struggles with my mental health, um, you know, breakdowns, very sustained yeah. depression, that kind of thing, which you didn't talk about at the time, although I'm, I'm very, very... Um, positive about talking about it today and it's a big sure. thing through our businesses that we we really support staff for that kind of thing and and i, I remember thinking 
really would love to get a job as a finance director of a really nice local business. That would really fit my new kind of dream of life. These were the days when you job hunted via the the newspapers. Mm. You know, the FT on a Monday, the Guardian on a Wednesday, I think it was, and the Oxford Times came out Friday morning. And I can remember sitting in a coffee shop at the bottom of Cumnor Hill with the Oxford Times, and there were probably two or three other guys like me opening the Oxford Times and searching. And I saw this advert for... Blenheim Palace wanting to hire their first ever finance director and and I raced home and applied for it probably within an hour yeah and, and I got a very surprised call about 15 minutes later from a, a very nice lady at Blenheim saying uh, we've just placed an advertisement for our first finance director role and you, you've already applied and I said well <laughs> um, yes no sound like the president and she said well, we, we, we think we'd very much like to meet you. Um, when could you come in? And I said, well, I could be there in about 15 minutes. And I could hear a sort of cup of tea being spilled. <laughs> and probably a, a big cross being put off far too, far too um, keen. Um, but but I did get in, I did, not that day, I did go to meet John. And John Hoy was the first chief executive at Blenheim. And he was a brilliant guy. Uh, is a brilliant guy. And we worked together for about 13 years with me as his finance director. And there, there was so much, the place was so pregnant with opportunity and had such amazing potential and wow we were able we were able to do an awful lot very fast with great support from trustees and and the the 11th duke and and it was great fun uh, and and through that period I, I occasionally trustees would say you know if anything ever happened would you step into the role of ceo and i was always very clear you could stick that one where the sun don't shine because i watched what john did and thought <laughs> That's not. I, I'm a backroom boy. I love playing with numbers. I, yeah. I I love cold strategy and data handling and and measuring stuff that can't be easily measured. That was me. Uh, but when he did finally call me in and say, "I've I've had an amazing opportunity. I'm I'm going to take it," and they approached me, I, I knew I wanted to become CEO deep down, and that was because through a fair chunk of the time I'd been here. I'd really been searching my soul for what the real point of a landed estate was. You know, was it mm -hmm. just this weird conglomerate of businesses that just happened to be owned by kind of the same person? Mm -hmm. or, 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 or was there something more to a landed estate? And I think it was round about the time the trustees approached me and, and John said he was moving on that it really crystallized in my mind what the real power of a landed estate could be. And once I'd done that, well, I actually wanted to just say, yes, I'll take the job. But I, I actually wrote the trustees a paper saying, this is what I believe the potential of a landed estate is. Okay. These are the things I think we ought to take on. And this is why all these things are in our very direct interest. And I said, and I'm really excited about this, but I would completely understand if you didn't agree. And I think it's right that I'm open about what I think we can do. Because if you appoint me, even if you say to me, but we don't want you to do those things, all the way through i'll be bending that way i'll be bending yeah, that way yeah, and yeah. i'd rather be honest with you and if you're looking at that and saying yeah that's not for us absolutely yeah. fine i'm not going to walk out the door i'll be here i'll look after the place while you hire a ceo who reflects what you want to do and i'll support him and i'll leave when that makes sense you know, when you want the right people in place it's not a problem it won't be contentious but don't don't appoint me if you don't buy into all of this and they came back really quickly and said absolutely up for this Go do it. So, so this is a 
a great segue into my into my first point and the first thing I wanted to ask you about because um, I hadn't realised you'd approached the the board like that and said this is this is the vision because I think it was it 2017 you introduced the new the new mission for Blenheim and that's um, that was to share and protect this place Blenheim for future generations to enhance the lives of local people and to be the lifeblood of local economy. So you you said there that Blenheim was doing really well. It was it was mm. thriving. There was there was endless opportunity and it. it it, it, you know, it wasn't like it needed that that kickstart. Um, and you, you mentioned um, before we came on that the ten goals that that are mapping out this vision and working you, helping you to work towards the the completion of the vision within um, the next ten years. And maybe we'll unpack some of those later. But I'm interested in, and you touched on it there a bit, in why you bought that that vision, that mission in when you did, because. It, it clearly wasn't out of necessity really um where did the, where did that come from where where did that where was that idea born there's, there's several different kind of coalescing answers to that question i mean one is i, I passionately believe you have to start with why yeah, that mm. famous simon sinek book and uh blenheim is a commercial entity right we 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 we, we have to make money either for our shareholders as it were or the family or or to generate funds for restoration in in the charity we have to do these things but we don't just want to make money any way we can there has to be a lot of thought about the right ways of making money the ways that support each other and starting with why is i think the most powerful way of choosing what you do and don't do and I'd always been thrown, I'd, I'd wrestled this for quite a few years and, and most great organizations can name their why very, very quickly. You know, um, I, it, 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 they tend to be single purpose organizations. And and the problem with Blenheim is it's a very complicated cluster of, you know, on the face of it, unrelated things, you know, house building, um, visitor attraction, um, mineral water production, you know, sustainable energy production, very unrelated things and I wanted a way of explaining all of that and figuring out how we make then incremental choices and it really wasn't until I just accepted that Blenheim was a complicated thing and actually it's probably not a single purpose but two or three related purposes added together as you described lifeblood of local economy enhancing lives of local people sharing and protecting this extraordinary place but these things overlap i think very powerfully and we'll talk about that a little later um but i felt i needed a why because that would then allow us to create the venn diagram of in one circle all the things that would be good opportunities profitable opportunities for us to take advantage of and in the other circle overlapping all the things we really want to do and in the overlap we've got things we really want to do and things that have business models, commercial business models behind them. And that overlap for a land estate is huge. Yeah, we can almost exclusively play in that overlap. Good things we want to deliver, which have a good business model. And that, as a, as a segue, is crucial because, and we'll explore this a bit more later, I'm sure, we don't just want to do things ourselves. We want, we're ambitious, we're, we're egotistical, we're all these things. We want our successes in the future to enthusiastically continue the things we've started off. Because why wouldn't they? There's a great business model behind it. Mm -hmm. Why wouldn't you make these choices? But we also want other long-term entities like us to replicate what we're doing. Because landed estates, they're all over the country, different sizes and shapes, but they're, they're fundamentally quite similar to each other. And if we can make 
a radical new, truly affordable housing model work, and we can demonstrate it's profitable and we can demonstrate it's in the long-term interest of a landed estate to ensure that our young people growing up in the area can actually afford to stay in the area they were born in. That's very much in our interest. We've no interest in the area around us becoming a kind of executive retirement village. Um, mm-hmm. That's really, really important. And and I felt this mission captured that very much. So there was this sense of we found our why and that will drive us for the next 10 years. There are sort of other practical reasons why we, we we took on this purpose statement. Landed estates are generally led or very heavily influenced by their aristocratic leader, a lord or a duke or, or whatever. And if that person's very present, then they will greatly influence what goes on. You know, good or bad, really. I think generally good. But, you know, um, if they want to shut their doors to everyone, that is pretty much what that estate will do. If they want to be incredibly sustainable, that is what that estate will do. And, and you know, the, the, the connection we have with our current Duke isn't that close in that sense. Mm. He's not looking to greatly influence what we do. And I felt there was a need to create a vision that our trustees, the Duke and his family, but our employees too could all buy into and say, this is the spirit of what Blenheim is and does. And I think we articulated something that, that, that yeah, you know, I think pretty much everyone who looked at it said, yeah, that's actually a really great vision that we can get behind. And particularly our staff, it gave them at the point where, you know, John, they'd known John as CEO and the 11th Duke as Duke for like most of their working lives. Yeah. And suddenly it had all changed to give them that stable true north to be able to relate it back but also project it forward gave a real sense of we're on a journey that we all understand it will be unpredictable but but we'll have that true north to head towards and i think that on a very practical level was super important and i think the final bit of it was that you know intrinsic to what we were doing is in the first years together there were so many internal opportunities to pursue that we were flat out busy pursuing them we really were but I wanted to explain to the world around us, to the business communities of Oxfordshire, to the local governments of local Ox- of Oxfordshire, I wanted to explain Blenheim to them, not say, hey, we're this wacky landed estate with a duke, etc. but don't worry, we're going to do some interesting things. I'm sure that would have got a reception. I also wanted to be able to explain the narrative of we could be a really interesting partner to many of you, and let me tell you why. And I think this narrative is one that they all get and we do occupy that slightly different space as a result you know we are commercial enterprise without doubt we we deploy capital for profits and we take a risk to do so that's something you would recognize at white and black we also a bit like a public sector body you know we'll be in this location forever Mm. yeah we're not moving our offices from bladen to the center of oxford or indeed to another county uh, we will be here a few miles north of Oxford in 300 years' time, just as we were 300 years ago. And it's a very powerful sense of place. And if you put those two elements together, we have the ability as a business to invest in this location and have a very, very high level of confidence that we will be here to reap the benefits, however long it takes them to flow. And most businesses couldn't invest in an area like that. It wouldn't make sense. And most and most local authorities have no power to invest it's not something they're allowed to do so we're already in a unique space there and then you add to that this idea that we we're like the third sector to the for good 
or the not-for-profit sector um, in, 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 I think, an interesting way because there's loads of things we do as Blenheim which are very clearly for good and not everything by any stretch, but, but you know, he'd take... I don't know, investing money in local facilities, um, ensuring propping up the community pubs in the area, taking significant stakes in them and 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 really funding them hard. Yeah, we're never going to get any money back for doing, for, for, yeah, for, for saving the White House in Bladen along with the community. We'll, we'll not make a profit from that. There's no possibility of us making a profit from that. Is it in our interests as the local landed estate? The owner of many homes, you know, the landlord of many homes in Bladen. We have many more employees who live there. Is it in our interest that Bladen stays a flourishing and vibrant community? Yeah, absolutely. Hmm. Uh, so it's it's for good. It's for our own good. And so we take these three strands together. This is a way of explaining this unique beast, a commercial enterprise with a permanent tie to place and, and many of the attributes of the not-for-profit sector as well. We're in that unique space, and I think the, the the purpose we outlined about an hour and a half ago kind of kind of <laughs> describes all of that. And and I may just flip on and say, you know, the one the one thing about a purpose is it's supposed to be it's supposed to have a very long timeline. Yeah, we it shouldn't our purpose shouldn't dramatically change when I when I fall under a bus or retire or whatever. Um, it should be something that's always true as an expression of what's in the interests of a landed estate. It's not a great smart objective, though. You know, lifeblood of local economy, that, that's not a great objective. Anyone would critique that and go, well, there's no time limits on it. There's no way of measuring it. There's... So we, we also set out instantly, and this was intrinsic to it, 10 goals which would represent what we were going to focus on for the next 10 years. We're halfway through that now, slightly more. And those were time-bound. They were absolutely, by early 2027, here's the date, we will achieve these things. They were all, or all but one, really quite measurable, and wherever possible, measurable by outsiders. Mm-hmm. So we have these goals, and this is saying, look, this is what the purpose means in this ten-year period: to treble our contribution to the local economy, measured by Oxford Brookes University Business School, etc. Every year, we we publish it all, um, and then there are goals around, you know, a hundred apprenticeships in ten years. All these are ten-year goals: three hundred truly affordable homes, three quarters of a million paying visitors. Who spend a lot in the area um, to, to get to net zero, to be a top 100 employer, to, to complete a, an, an unparalleled 40 million pound restoration program, and at the same time build a 45 million pounds investment endowment to ensure that the, the charity, the World Heritage Site, can go on forever, regardless of what the world throws at it. Rebuild some of the lost art collection and bring some new stuff in um, to, and, and finally to double the, the value of our contributions to the community. Again, it's externally measured. Um, these are tighter objectives for, and, and they're very much a part of that purpose vision. And, and you know, when we get to 27, I'll be gone. The team, whatever a new team it is, will sit there and, and they might take on, I'd like to think they'll take on 10 new kinds of goals some of them will look like the old ones some of them will go off in a whole new direction they should though sit i hope below that purpose statement sure and and the reason that makes sense for us in a nutshell is is all those things i've just described in the 10 goals all those things described in the purpose they outline the kind of they're the limits on the success of a landed estate yeah, if this landed estate will do very nicely, thank you very much, but won't really fulfil its potential unless 
this is a place that has a truly vibrant economy where people want to bring their families, want to open businesses, want to start law firms, want to have clients around them who those law firms can serve. It won't be a success if this is not a place where our children growing up can't afford really great houses. Yeah, unless they win the lottery or or something. It won't be a success if this is not a place where young people can get the best training opportunities around. And this is a place where our apprenticeships today run from you know finance to shepherding, from forestry to innovation to you know, it, it's it's incredibly wide. Um yeah. it won't be a success if we can't drive net zero sustainability in a huge and exemplary way. It won't be a success if we don't support our community institutions. Frankly, a lot of the area of success depends on the vibrancy of the World Heritage Site. So that's why it's crucially important we restore it with gusto and that we build an endowment to ensure we can continue to restore it if we can create that sustainable area pregnant with opportunities for our young people that 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 that, that people on let's say ordinary incomes can afford to live in and participate in just as much as the really wealthy people if we can make this truly green if we can make this a vibrant cultural back garden for everyone in an x mile radius if we can support these local institutions the potential for this landed estate to flourish and grow in the future is unlimited. Which which is so unique for a landed estate. And unique is a word you, you use a lot there. And I mean, we don't we don't have time to go into to all of the ten the ten points in detail. But it, it's it strikes me from the outside, um, and you mentioned it in your first strand there. In in maybe producing a model that other landed estates could could one day follow, but you you you're paving away really a new course for for the role of landed estates and properties like yours. And to me, <clears throat> the word innovation sums that up. And and innovation maybe isn't a word you'd associate with a country house on a landed estate built in the 1700s, is it? But if you take it by definition, you know, making changes to something that that is established. And that those changes and that development manifesting in your 10 goals and, and the development towards that vision. And to me, that is absolutely what, what you're doing. And I think innovation sums it up perfectly, that you that uniqueness that you have. Would, would you agree with that? And, and you know, I was going to ask you if, if that's something you're deliberately doing. But in, in oh, yes. speaking there, you've, you've answered that. And that absolutely is deliberate. Oh, we have a head of innovation. We have yeah. uh, a lot yeah. of innovation resource. I'm staring down at the office at at least two maybe three people who are working on innovation at the moment we have partnerships with oxford brooks and with oxford university which um are, are, are hugely powerful they're very active partnerships you know there's been probably at four meetings this week between universities and us on on a whole variety of projects from biodiversity improvements to water quality to ai prediction of Vista numbers and of lichen impact on stone quality and and wow. all these things. Um, no, it it is very much a sense of um, innovation as a very deliberate business function and unbridled as yeah. well. Um, yeah. You know, we there's no limits on where our innovation team can wander. And what's what's great is actually we worked out this morning in a completely separate meeting that, that the innovation team in the last month had engaged with every other team at Blenheim in some way or another wow. which is which is which is very powerful um, yeah. but but there's another side to it and I, we want to be innovative we're proud of our uniqueness but the world of landed estates is an amazing world in several ways one of them is that there's a sense of complete openness between them uh, in a way that you know, white and black 
couldn't pick up the phone to Clifford Chance and say, we've been worrying about something. Can we pick your brains? How did you deal with <laughs> yeah, this? Or yeah. you, at least it wouldn't be so easy. You know, you're, yeah, yeah. For, for us, for land estates, we don't compete with each other in any meaningful sense. Our ability to pick up the phone to Northumberland, to Chatsworth, to Buckloo, to Bewley, to um, yeah. the openness between us. Yeah, mm. absolutely. There's no, there's no bullshit, if I may use such a phrase, on a high-class uh, podcast like this. I'll the explicit sign on, but that's all right. Or bleep me out or something. Um, <laughs> there's no, yeah, there's no, there's no sense of we try and blag that we've done it quite well when in reality we messed it up. You know, we'll yeah. say no, no, no. Yeah, we tried that. Here's here's a good case study on how not to do it. Yeah. <laughs> um, and so actually, some of the things we're doing have been copied and replicated already. But I'd be completely open in saying we have copied stuff mm. from elsewhere. And there is, I think, today the world of landed estates is absolutely full of clever, innovative new people who are are seizing different bits of the opportunity set that I described earlier. They might not yeah. they might not do it with the deliberate breadth that we have, but around the model is several landed estates really innovating in sustainability, really innovating in affordable housing, really innovating in supporting local education or the local economy. And and we get the benefit of that because they tell us about it and we can we we have this sort of mental map of oh we're seeing a problem in a particular area who were the three or four people we're going to call just to get an early a to warn them and b to get their advice because they might have come across it before um so i i would hate about all day long i'll paint the picture that blenheim's the best and blenheim's unique but in reality um it's a very giving sharing thing and even on the innovation front you know david leads um an innovation partnership in which ooh, seven or eight other institutions take part land to the stage mainly institutions but also a couple of national trust places where people at these places who are interested in bits of innovation gather together online and, they, and they'll exchange a lot of information about what they're up to and they'll solve problems together so it, it's nice to be in a space where we can so freely offer up our time and know we're kind of going to get it back as well Innovations very deliberately fostered. I mean, we would we are definitely moving from point A to point B, and the mm -hmm. idea that we can make that move from A to B without having to come up with new things, even if my idea set day one was highly plausible, stuff will go wrong. And if you're only innovating to fix the stuff that goes wrong, that's worth it. For us, the great thing about innovation has been how we can expand our possibilities again so as, as one small story on that we as part of a, a knowledge transfer partnership project with oxford brooks we had to create what's known as a low power radio network a LoRa network which allows us to collect information from sensors of various kinds even though those sensors are in remote woodland um so they don't need power because they've got a very long life battery and they use it very carefully a bit like those sort of space satellites where you know they, they work out that if they only use the battery for three seconds a day it'll last for 10 years you know okay. um and it uses a radio network as long as we've got an antenna within five miles we can pick that up and that was for this ktb project but almost instantly we we ended up working with schools several schools and we still today are working with more and more schools at how their pupils can use our sensor technology with us writing all the notes and explaining how to build it and plug it into our networks and do live science kind of real world science wow. and it's not just the experiments that we kind of thought oh, it would be cool if they could measure and 
wildlife noise at night in the woodlands or, or whatever. It's the stuff they ha- they come back doing. They're using the same sensors to measure air quality around a school gate at 3 p.m. when all their mummies and daddies come. And because it's hot, they leave the engine running to power the air conditioning in the car. But what happens to the air quality? And kids are kind of using the same network, some of the same sensors to figure this one out. And, and it's, it, you always smile when you create a a piece of infrastructure for one purpose you share it out and you discover that three villages are now actively measuring water turbidity and water depth along the rivers that flow towards them so they get early warnings of of wow. floods or sewerage discharges and that um it's yeah they're using the same network they're using the sensors we showed them how to use but they and just that went, innovation they just spreads went. it yeah, just spreads out yeah it's the great thing about innovation that you know, if, if, you, if you're not worried we don't have to. We're not like a you know, drugs company that, that spends staggering amounts of innovation and has to have the commercial. Has to protect themselves that they get the commercial benefits. We, yeah, as long as we're getting from the system what we want from it, we will always choose the open innovation system and start briefing other people how to use it. Mm-hmm. So whether it's the gifted and talented kids from um, you know, the, the main comprehensive school in Ancient or or lvs down the road or yeah that that extra joy just makes it yeah if we're making a choice between singular proprietary we'll get the benefits through to we can do the same thing but in a way that other people can also use yeah we'll always pick the 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 latter yeah yeah just amazing stuff and again like i said it's just not something you would associate with a traditional landed estate in terms can we stay on innovation and sustainability mm. is there's a bit of a topic and, and unpack one of your goals perhaps um mm. obviously sustainable business carbon management huge necess absolute necessities for for any serious business in today's day and age to manage that and um i was looking at your economic impact report from 2022 and you describe combating climate change as, you, as blenheim's biggest battle um i'm sure many ceos people listening to this would would echo that in in their own context um, and I think you were just awarded a, a gold award from UK's green tourism, I think, which, which makes Blenheim one of the UK's greenest tourist attractions. So, um, you know, th- things are going well, but I, I wondered if you could share a bit about how you're tackling Blenheim's mm. biggest battle, as, as you put it, and it's no small undertaking, is it? No, it's not. And it has evolved. If you go back to 2020, sorry, to 2017, uh, I, I said glibly our goal was to get to net zero or further. Actually, in 2017, we, we made the goal to generate more green energy than we consume, which is kind okay. of embarrassing. You look back, it didn't really. That's not a goal that aged particularly well. So we, we fairly quickly switched that to get Blenheim to be net zero. Uh, and we take a very broad view as to our carbon impact and to the biggest example of which is in a normal year and, and let's face it the pandemic's not been normal so let me go back to sort of 2019-20 uh, our carbon cost on this planet was about 32,000 tons of that 32,000 tons 20,000 roughly was the emissions of our visitors driving backwards and forwards to come to visit Blenheim okay. and and almost everyone else in the sector at that time and still today ignores those that's somebody else's emissions, that's your personal emissions. I think that's, that's, that's a bit nutty, really, because our business model as a visitor attraction is persuading you to come to Blenheim yeah. and spend money with us, spend money outside too. Um, uh, how can we not be responsible for those emissions? And and so we we instantly took this broader view. And, set, and so part of our 
projection as to how we get to net zero internally by 2027 is we have to move more than half of those journeys onto green journeys, you know, bus, cycle, train, whatever, or get them or offer an offset opportunity, a genuine offset opportunity to um, those visitors. We're at about one in six at the moment, which is which is actually very, very good for a rural attraction. I'm not sure anyone else has got there, um, mm. but it's hard. And, you know, the incremental steps of getting there, we've just opened a stunning new community footpath, or actually community path, I'd call it, from Hanborough Station around the south of the site through to the White House in Bladen and then on to Blenheim. And that allows us to make coming from Hanborough Station and particularly taking your bike, although you can walk it to, a joyful, beautiful thing to do. Yeah, that's more attractive than driving it, frankly. Um, that's, a, that's a big weapon for us. But w- there's all sorts of things to do. We, we, we essentially model that we can about, we can approximately half our carbon to about 16,000 tonnes by 2027. And we believe we can directly offset or inset the remaining 16,000 tonnes through a mixture of planting new woodlands and we planted about 300,000 trees um, a year ago was the first of those. We've got to do a couple more of those um, by building more solar of our own. So we have a, we're just about to plug in a seven megawatt array. We need to do at least one more of those. And finally, through transforming about 2,000 acres of our agricultural farming into regenerative agriculture, which is farming that consciously locks carbon into the soil. And so we, we, we expect to get to a sort of approximate net zero position ourselves. And that will dramatically improve as the years go on because the woodlands we're planting won't sequester. They're not at peak sequestering points in their first five to 10 years. So from year 10 onwards, these trees really suck in the carbon. So we'll have We'll have planted the woodlands that will step up our carbon sequestration very dramatically. But we, even in that journey, I think there's the dawning sense that the problem is vastly worse than people are really considering. And it's interesting that over time, in 1992, the first IPCC report talked about avoiding climate harm by making significant change to human behaviour. Mm-hmm very good scientific speak that by 2022 last year's report the most recent one talked about an existential threat to our species and yeah we're very blessed at Blenheim we have a lot of resources yeah while we're having to work hard to get to net zero there's an awful lot of unused resource there that could go a whole lot further and frankly we're blessed in the sense of well as a law firm you can't do the kind of things you don't own vast swathes of land to sequester carbon in. you can't plant huge new woodlands you can't you, you, you'll be doing very well to get to true net zero and and that's your piece we looked at it and thought well if we scratch our heads and think about this really hard forget net zero how much carbon can we cause to be sequestered or avoided if we use every bit of Blenheim that we possibly can if we just say this is this is the thing and if you've got this long-term time frame this legacy view that we talked about earlier in this interview you're going to really care about what this place is like in 100 years time mm-hmm. it's not i'll be gone you'll be gone in fact it's the vast opposite i've i've looked in the eye little araminta casper the duke's children and and olympia who's um you know, if if gender succession laws change, would become, I suppose, the the fourteenth duke. You know, I'm not not sure if that will happen. We've looked them in the eye. They're the ones going to be standing on these fields, yeah, in in 
50 years time saying what the f were humanity or dom <laughs> up to wasn't it obvious they were going to destroy this place and and so we've we've really set out with some very very bold moves indeed mm. um plans to really decarbonize energy generation which is the, the absolute root of all evil in this you know it, it all everyone's carbon really stems from energy generation and you know we we are promoting vigorously what people slate us by calling the biggest solar farm in europe but i absolutely celebrate the biggest solar farm in europe this will generate enough clean energy to power every home in oxygen and that is the wow. scale that is the power of a landed estate the scale of yeah. it and if yeah. you think you can do it and if you think maybe a hundred percent of scientific opinion says it's an existential threat to our species please can you avoid it maybe we should do that and mm. uh yeah so we have that ambition on another level we we have an amazing plan that that cycle route i mentioned that foot route safe off-road through our woodlands along the lake sort of route you'd happily send your mother-in-law or your children along if we can link all of our communities via that kind of safe thing will we move from being a rural community where 80 percent plus of all movements are in the car will we move to a really decarbonized new sustainable way of living i think i think we can woodland planting at even bigger scale i mean that that's an amazing opportunity uh we, we even harness our, our business into it so yeah if, if, if you try to book to come to blenheim today instead of doing the conventional thing which is make it as easy as possible for you to book we say stop i know you want to come have you considered the carbon mm-hmm. and we list out the ways of getting here and the different carbon impacts and if if you if you push hard and say no i'm definitely going to come by car it's the only way we then say okay this is the amount of carbon you're going to emit would you like us to offset that for you by planting trees here and we let you get the offset directly it's the opposite of marketing conventional approach but you know a decent percentage of our visitors are now doing it and it will grow and grow and grow i think i think people become more switched onto this there are all sorts of massive plans we have bringing forward we have a vertical plan vertical farming experiment running down at the pleasure gardens where we are growing proper food not not little micro salad leaves that you get in most places but but you know we're growing proper food in vertical farms and even trees because one of the big things no one's talking about is we all agree there has to be a lot more trees the government plans are for quite staggering amounts of new woodland but the problem is that in the pandemic all the uh, the tree planting people all the people who produce the saplings stopped work and they stopped producing saplings and we're so far behind in sapling production it's going to really genuinely constrain the production of the new woodlands that we need to sequester the carbon to protect everyone. Um, so this vertical farm can produce the saplings at something like two and a half times the speed of wow. normal production. That's very useful. Wow. So there's all sorts of things. Is this our biggest battle? Absolutely, yes. Are we winning it? Absolutely not. It's an absolute... Yeah, it's, it is one of those things where you don't set achievable goals. You've mm-hmm. got to set absolutely bold, bonkers bold goals and and we still dare not fail uh we, we we've been able to really organize a lot of resource behind this and i'm, I'm if you go back to the beginning resource that has a business model i mean thank yeah. god clean energy production is profitable because that will attract the landowners it will attract the operators it, it will attract positive support from the planning authorities and all these things all that has to happen if if to decarbonize energy if, if that was a loss-making endeavor, we'd all be doomed. Mm. 
thankfully it makes money and so and our role in it makes money too and so you know i've seen i have seen the future i've been at sessions of some of the larger landed estates and seen how many projects for clean energy production or energy storage they are bringing forward and when that collection of 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 estates you know together landed estates and long-term owners are about one third of the whole land you know this is big stuff yeah thank we're in the good position in the uk that we are in terms of energy production clean energy production largely because the crown estate mm-hmm. have really been progressive at opening up the offshore and shoreland areas for particularly wind and wave um, generation of energy thank god if they were against it because they were too conservative we'd be in big trouble yeah so, no, it's yeah. a huge battle it's existential we have to win it yeah Don, there's there's so much in there that I, I would love to unpack with you. Um, I'm I'm conscious of your time, but it it has struck me throughout and and everything that you've spoken about. You know that the three elements to Blenheim that, that you mentioned at the start. Um, obviously there's the the commercial business element, but to me the um the care and the the prioritization of of the future and future generations and the future of the local area comes through so strongly in everything you do and you couple that with with the projects that you have on the the innovation that you're you're throwing at things and it really is um something very special i think and and i must admit i hadn't realized the the scale of of what is going on before talking to you um and it's just brilliant and obviously looking forward and the future and, and you've referenced that in different ways throughout um maybe you could you could just give us a bit of a taste of, of what what is to be expected um obviously the 10 goals carry on uh, and and you've got that 2027 landmark but what can we expect moving forward ah it's a really hard question i mean the short run bit of that's easy we are investing hard in yeah everything from new woodlands to solar production to building the most astonishingly green homes i mean genuinely we're getting to the point where they're not just carbon zero in terms of their operation, but we're really starting to kick chunks out of the carbon that's embedded in the construction. Mm. Future future needs that. Uh, current energy prices, all our all our owners and tenants need that too. In the visitor attraction, we're, we we've just opened up a wonderful new adventure play. Um, we shortly open up 34 holiday eco lodges, and and this, it, these things are really great examples of driving economic contribution because the people who come to stay in these eco lodges, however beautiful the kitchens, they eat out breakfast, lunch, and dinner. You know, mm-hmm. this is going to be a huge fillip for local businesses. In the long run, I think it is largely about sustainability. Uh, you know, we already on our fairly marginal farmland and Blenheim land sadly is sort of lower grade farmland we're already finding it harder and harder to grow things it's monoculture production we it is it is supported sadly by you know more fertilizer and more chemicals than our farmers would ideally use it it, it is very hard and that is getting worse each year it is getting worse when people talk about having 30 or less harvests to go on our land Mm. that's the reality not not the opportunity for nice vineyards in the south of England, it's we can't grow stuff. You know, um, people sometimes I think miss that when we talk about global warming in a very glib sense, it sounds kind of nice. The reality isn't. We have so much ground to cover so quickly. I suspect that focus will enlarge and enlarge every bit of our business from creating houses that will survive and protect their, its occupants 
and allow them to live affordably as the climate changes and creating a visitor attraction that can still trade year round, supporting the local economy and supporting masses of jobs. You know, we support about two and a half thousand jobs outside of Blenheim. Yeah, if we cannot trade year round because extreme weather, whether it's wind, rain or sun, stops people coming, huge damage there. Right for our businesses, answering these questions correctly is 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 all-consuming for a local institution like Blenheim. And yeah, I, I without guessing what my successors will want to do after 2027, it seems seems utterly unavoidable that it will be an even greater emphasis on treading lightly on this planet and building assets that will survive extreme weather and building economic models that will continue to flourish despite extreme weather. Yeah. Horrible yeah. challenge. But 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 thank goodness it's one we can take on. You yeah. Know, it's, we're not helpless in this. Yeah. And a challenge you you really already are taking on and, and facing head on. Um Dom, it's been brilliant to chat to you. Um I hope hope it's been insightful for people and, and um interesting to listen to. But thank you so much for taking the time to chat to me and, and coming on. It's a delight. We've um, always loved working with White and Black and Victoria and the team, and the very fond memories of Henry as well. Uh, of course, I still have I still have his photograph in my desk. Uh, amazing! Wow, uh, uh, amazing guy. Um, so yeah, it's been a partnership that we've valued hugely, and um, really appreciate you taking the interest in us. Mm-hmm.